Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Pushing 60 Aside with your host, Gene Fleming, ISSA Certified Fitness Trainer, Senior Fitness Specialist, and Fitness Nutrition Specialist. Hey, I like being a trainer, and, uh, you know, I think more than anything else, uh, just doing the study to become a certified trainer taught me a lot, not about helping other people, although it did teach me that, it taught me a lot about why my body works the way it does and how I can get my body to respond and get stronger and faster through planned training. Planned training. So, you know, I really like everything that I have learned over this last four years, and I really treasure the experiences I've had working with individuals, sometimes with a class of 30, sometimes solo with a friend like uh, Deborah Brown. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of, and then sometimes with doing online coaching, like with my friend Bruce, and sometimes, you know, it's good to have somebody that's got a completely different set of meteorological circumstances and a, even a different country to talk things through with. Um, isn't that right, France? Thank you for listening, and thanks all the rest of you that listen on a regular basis. I appreciate that you're faithful listeners. Now, I knew when I got rid of my big Facebook group that listenership was going to go down because people tend to forget about podcasts unless they follow the podcast or they subscribe to the podcast. And uh, so listenership has fallen off about well, about 40%, but that's okay. That's okay. I enjoy doing this because it makes me dig deep every week or so to produce some content that I think may be interesting to you. Now, I'm glad I'm done talking about politics and things like that, and um, I spent two episodes kind of, you know, mining that vein of interest that we've all had this last few months, and, um, you know, and now I just trust the process of democracy to take us forward, and we'll see how all this pans out. I think, ultimately, America will do what it has always done, and we will, uh, once again, be united as a country, and a respected country internationally. That's really important to me, because I worked Intel for so many years, and um, it's, a, it's a tricky, tricky business, you know, and um, so it's important to have strong allies in other countries, and uh, it's great to have trade relationships with other countries. It's all what makes the wheels on the bus go round and round that keep our economy thriving and, and make it possible for us to go on great adventures, maybe going on cruises and going to other countries or going to Europe or going to Asia. And those times will come again once the pandemic is under control. And I am just looking forward to those days. Heck, I'd just like to be able to go to a mall and goof off for three or four hours looking at running shoes. Doesn't that sound like the most boring thing in the world? And uh, so, uh, well, what, did, what am I going to talk about this week that, that might, you know, keep you interested? Not that... And, and oh, by the way, I'm not sponsored anymore, so I don't even get a penny per listen anymore. I get nothing but the pleasure of sitting down in my little idea of a recording studio and sharing my thoughts with you. That alone is worth it to me. And, um, you know, I cashed out uh, about a week or two ago, and my sum total earnings for doing almost two years worth of podcast was $40.13. So unless you've got tens of thousands of listeners, you don't really make any money at this. <laughs> so anybody can have a podcast. And uh, if it's good enough, people will listen. And if it's not good, they'll listen one time and they'll never listen again. That's just the reality of it. Frankly, I never thought I would have a podcast. Uh, you know, it never crossed my mind. I tried doing video stuff on 
on YouTube and through Facebook. But really, uh, podcasting uh, or producing an episode, I should say, takes it takes a concerted amount of time, perhaps an hour and a half or two hours, depending. Sometimes I have little notes laid over here on the side that I can refer to to keep me on track. And sometimes at least an outline is a good idea because it keeps me from just rambling. And, um, and, and I want to keep, if I've got a message that's special, I want to keep the I want to keep it coherent. I want to keep it uh, to where when I finish up the podcast, uh, you get the pearl of wisdom if there's one to be had. And I've, I've always likened my educational process to building a pearl necklace. And, and it goes kind of like this. Every time that I find something that just really lights me up, I mean, I, I have the light bulb of a great idea, uh, in cartoon fashion appear over my head and I go, wow, that's really smart. I need to hold on to that concept, that idea, that notion, that quote, that idea, that thought. And and so I call it a pearl. It's a pearl of wisdom. And so if I do hold on to it, I get to collect it and put it on the strand. And the objective is to get as many pearls on my pearl necklace as I can in my lifetime. And the only way I can do that is to continue studying, continue learning, to be open to new ideas. It helps me to talk to people that don't look like I do, uh, people that um, don't have my background uh, professionally. Uh, I need to talk to people other than retired Navy cryptologists. Can you imagine how boring it must be when we get together? I need to talk to more people than just the people that I'm religiously affiliated with. I need to learn uh, what other people think and, and, and how they reach God. It, it's, it's really an interesting thing to do. And it's not that they're right and I'm wrong or, I'm, or, or vice versa, however that works out. Uh, but, you know, knowledge, I've always heard, is power. And I like to, I like to seek out new knowledge. You know, I've done it with birds, I've done it with trees, I've done it with flowers, I've done it with fish. You know, just to, to learn what this is in nature and and to learn what it is in the night sky, whether I'm looking at constellations or planets, you know, little tidbits, some of them are significant enough to make a pearl that I can add to my strand. And perhaps someday I'll look like the former first lady, Mrs. Bush, and have a three-strand pearl necklace. Uh, I won't wear it, but anyway, it's just a metaphor. You get the idea. So why am I bugging you today? And uh, I, it, I've been thinking because, as you well know, I'm sure you read the paper, you listen to the news, and um, personally, I like to listen to NPR a lot. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, National Public Radio, um, I, I believe I like listening to it because the news news is clear, concise, and it's unbiased. It's at least so it seems to me. Now, some people would say it's kind of a liberal slant, but you know, I want my news told to me on a broadcast that I can listen to, and in twenty five or thirty minutes time, I've got the meat and potatoes of what's happening, not just in the United States, not just in uh, North Alabama, not just uh, on this side of the globe, but internationally as well, and uh, so and and that too stretches my mind. I sometimes hear of a place uh, where there's been an earthquake or a flood or monsoon rains that um, or a typhoon uh, or an earthquake, things like that, and I have to look those places up and learn a little bit about that country, that island, um, that region of the world. And, and you know, it's not always worth a pearl, but, uh, you know, it just it stimulates my mind. It takes me someplace to uh, knowledge that I've perhaps not been before. I'd never heard of the island of Mauritius. And um, it's a country. It's off the... Uh, east coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean 
and I had never heard of it until about 1998, and, um, you know, it popped up in the news again a few days ago, and I said, oh, I know where that is, and I like that kind of thing. I would like to think that I could go to a, a party, uh, a social gathering, <laughs> when we get to have those again, and and be around people that have traveled extensively, uh, who've worked in different occupations than I have, um, and carry on a, a civil and intelligent conversation with a vast variety of things. And sometimes, as Charlotte can attest, in, in Alabama, it's going to be Roll Tide College football. Not, <laughs> not always, but there's does, there does seem to be a focus here in this state between um, the Auburn Tigers and the Alabama Crimson Tide in conversations. And, uh, but I generally don't wear team shirts, but <laughs> a lot of people here do. So why did I want to do a podcast tonight? I wanted to talk to you about preparedness. Preparedness. Um, last week I, I talked about, I was thankful that uh, my mother had the foresight uh, to get me started in Boy Scouts when I was 11. And actually I had done Cub Scouts for a year or two before that, but by the time you're 11 years old, you're, you know, you're starting to come into your maturity a little bit and you're starting to get growth spurts and you're starting to become a, a, a young man, a very young man. And, um, and I'm forever thankful to the Boy Scouts because um, it is said that if a, a boy goes into the scouting program and uh, attains the rank of Eagle Scout, he has the equivalent of a two-year college education. I believe that to be true. I had to study everything from traffic to cooking to camping to knot tying to uh, rappelling to uh, marksmanship to archery and, uh, and, uh, and religion all, and music, all kinds of things I had to study in order to get merit badges over about a four-year period. And uh, then I got pinned with my Eagle badge I got a certificate that was signed by then-president Richard Nixon, so that, that kind of age dates me. Mm. Pardon me, I had to take a drink. Water, by the way. Water, water, water. So preparedness. You know, the Boy Scout uh, motto was be prepared. And the whole concept of scouting was to give us boys skills that would teach us to survive in in a in a wide array of circumstances, you know whether we went camping and severe weather blew in, uh, freezing weather blew in, if we ended up lost in the woods, how to provide uh, or build a, a survival shelter, how to signal rescuers, all kinds of things like that. It was really neat, and I've never forgotten that stuff. And when I hunted for so many years. I always had that skill set, that knowledge in my head when I often went off into the swamps of northwest Florida to stalk wild pigs. That was one of my favorite things to do uh, probably back when I was in my mid-30s or so. Anyway, preparedness. Thinking about the pandemic and how inconvenient this is for those of us that are in the more at-risk age group. And, you know, I'm 63 now, had the birthday and all of that. And consistently on the news, that we hear that people age 65 and older are at greater risk of uh, being hospitalized and quite possibly dying if we were to contract the coronavirus that just scares the bejesus out of me. There, I said it again. I don't know when I started saying that. Uh, probably 25 years ago in the Navy. But anyway, there are also other factors that contribute to people uh, not having such a good prospect if they get infected with coronavirus. And by now, you've heard them all. I'm not going to beat that drum again. But we know that pre-existing conditions that can include any form of physiological diseases, um, 
a compromised immune system, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, and um, you know, and I would have to think that just physical weakness, I mean, lack of muscle, muscle, <laughs> that's a word that's stumping me right, musculature, lack of, you know, physical strength, you know, when you get sick, you need physical strength, um, maybe even just to walk to the car for somebody to take you to the hospital, but, uh, and, and that strength will help you in your recovery process, it always will, so, you know, while I am quarantining again because of the escalating numbers of infections, even here in my own county, our death count is up to 34 now, and we're a small rural county for the most part. Only 71,000 people live in DeKalb County, Alabama, and uh, when you stop, 71,000 seems like a whole lot of people, but the deaths are spread out now to where I never hardly ever meet anybody these days who doesn't know somebody personally who's been hospitalized for an extended stay or has been hospitalized and succumbed to the disease and died from it. So this disease is touching us in a more personal way than it did in the first two or three months where the numbers to a lot of people seemed fictitious. It's like well, that's in New York, and that's not here, and I really don't care. You know, it's a metropolitan uh, metropolis of, of of millions of people, and they're they're all, they're all packed in there tightly together. And but that's not here in rural Alabama, uh, where we have rolling hills and 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 cattle ranches and hay fields and cornfields and cotton fields, and um, you know those sorts of things. Uh, here we, you know, the most people you're going to see might be at Walmart or at church, you know, you're not, you know, or at one of our local festivals. But, uh, you know, for us living here, the thought of being in some place like Times Square on New York, uh, New York, New Year's Eve, is unimaginable. You know, for us, a major field trip is going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's just, that's just how we are here, you know, so it doesn't become personal until people around you start getting really, really sick and your kids are being sent home from school and put in quarantine and you've got to figure out daycare, you got to figure out how to do homeschooling, uh, parents that don't really have computer skills are having to learn how to use laptop computers to help their children, so... You know, it's it's a difficult time, and I've noticed, and I'm sure you have too, if you do your household shopping, that sometimes when I go to the grocery store, things that I normally would have purchased aren't on the shelf. Weird things, weird things. You know, I'm a good old southern boy, and I, I like collard greens and turnip greens, and I don't mind buying them in the can. I like spinach and things like that, but... Um, it's in short supply, and I, I don't understand that. It's an easily grown crop. It's easily harvested. It's easily canned, yet it's in short supply. Another weird thing that was in short supply is bacon bits. I just find it incredible that there's a shortage of bacon bits, and it's a hard find. And when you find a shelf that does have some, there may only be one or two packs left. I felt so lucky a few nights ago at our local grocery store to find a, ba uh, a bag of them, and it, it's not that we use that many, but sometimes we put a few in with our green beans to, or on top of a baked potato to season them. You know how all that goes. So anyway, I want to talk about preparedness, and I'm going to tell you a story, if you don't mind. And this is a real-life story, and I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts on what prepared me for the pandemic. Now, that sounds odd, because... It's not every day that we have to wear masks and social distance and and use a lot of hand sanitizer and things like that. It's, it's just not every day. Uh, in fact, uh, most of us have never done this unless we worked in a medical field or my wife who worked in dental hygiene. You know, wearing a mask to her is just part of the job and it's no big deal. 
but for us Joe citizens out here, you know, having to mask up, and, you know, I carry multiple masks in my car, uh, and, you know, they're hanging on my turn signal, so I can't forget them, and if I stop somewhere for groceries or gas or, or whatever, you can count on it. Even if I go through a drive-thru, which we do sometimes, my wife likes uh, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets, if I'm going through the drive-thru, I'm going to have to encounter people that are not in my circle, so when I'm going through the drive-thru, I'm wearing my mask. And frankly, I don't care if the whole world thinks I'm paranoid. I'm not paranoid. I'm prepared. And do you follow that? I'm not paranoid. I'm prepared. My single biggest fear these days is that in a moment of carelessness, be it in a conversation with a neighbor, whether it be going to a gym or running into somebody in a parking lot, uh, outside the grocery store and letting my guard down and engaging them in conversation for any length of time and uh, and then bringing the coronavirus home and giving it to Kathleen. I frankly, truly believe if she gets the coronavirus, she will be hospitalized. I have a greater fear that if she is hospitalized with coronavirus, she may not make it. She has a severe immune uh, system compromise. And uh, I can't go into all of her details because that's not what the podcast is about. But I want to tell you how life has prepared me for times such as these. I want to take you back to 1977. I'm on active duty. I go to school in Pensacola, Florida. Military life. Very regimented. Every hour of every day is accounted for. You're training, you're exercising, you're eating, you're sleeping, and if you're lucky, you might get to um, go shoot basketball with some friends or play guitars or something like that, but but you can count on it. You're going to be in school, um, you know, just about around the clock sometimes, and I did have to attend schools that uh, started at 10 o'clock at night and went till 6 o'clock in the morning. We had to do shift work to go to school. It was hard. And you've not had a great day in Navy school until you're a student like me and your sole purpose for about three months is to do nothing but learn to copy Morse code and to copy it faster and faster. And uh, and, and having to be able to copy 16 words a minute uh, to pass that portion of your education before you move on to the next portion of it. So military life put me through some schools to prepare me to be a cryptologist. And my first assignment, by my choice, was a small island in the North Pacific uh, called ADAC. ADAC had been a World War II base for the United States. And... um, and then after the war, uh, it was occupied mostly by people who caught crabs or fish for a living and, and a small contingent of military radio operators lived there as our uh, northern link in the Pacific uh, for radio communications. And, of course, there were radars and things like that. And uh, as the Cold War progressed, ADAC became a a key location for doing intelligence work because of its proximity to the Soviet Union and both aircraft, submarines, well, all three, aircraft, submarines, and Soviet uh, ships. And my job was to keep track of those things in part. Well, if you can imagine Adak Island, it's about 35 miles long, and it's not the coldest place in the world, even though it's in Alaska, but it's way out in the Aleutians. And because of the ocean currents, ADAC never gets like uh, Barrow, Alaska, or even Anchorage, Alaska cold. Uh, it gets cold and stays cold, but by that I mean, you know, in the at the height of winter, it's going to hang around 30 degrees most days. Uh, a warm day may be in the 40s. A very cold day may be in the upper teens. And, of course, uh, for my Canadian listeners, of course, that's all Fahrenheit. And uh, and so 
you know, you would go with periods of just, just long periods, I mean months, where it just drizzled rain every day, and then one day it'd switch over to snow, and then maybe it would snow for a couple of days, and we'd have a few inches on the ground, and then it'd go back to rain, and those of you especially that live up north know, know how that cycle goes. So, a lot of slush, and, and ADAC is called, nicknamed, the birthplace of the winds. The one thing you could always count on, on ADAC, was that the wind was going to be blowing. And when the wind got up to approximately hurricane strength, uh, it was called an alpha. That was the alphanumeric name for that type of a storm system. Now, we never talked about Bravos or Charlie conditions, although those, those, those were weather conditions, but uh, Charlie basically meant that you could uh, do just about anything outside. It was safe to drive, safe to hike, all those things. And Alpha meant stay in place wherever you're at. And sometimes we would have an Alpha weather condition that would last for days upon days. And if you were at work when that weather condition was announced, you stayed at work. And I mean, you stayed at your remote site on a remote island in the Aleutian Islands in the North Pacific because the weather was too bad for man or beast outside and too bad to even try to transport people to and from our work sites back to our central uh, base where our barracks and chow hall and uh, all those things were. So my first tour of ADAC Alaska was to be a year and 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 I loved it so much believe it or not I stayed for an additional six months for a year and a half. Now ADAC is a place that at that time was primarily male sailors, marines, and um, and civilian contractors. And the joke was that on ADAC, there was a girl behind every tree. Well, it was mostly men, and the truth of the matter was, the ADAC National Forest only had about 20, 25 trees. And there were probably that many military women <laughs> that were at the location where I worked. And uh, so, it's a hard scrabble life. You know, and we ate things like powdered eggs. I don't know if you've ever enjoyed powdered eggs, but they're a real treat. And and uh, sometimes meat uh, got to us very slowly, so there was not always ham or bacon or even ground beef in the in the chow hall. And uh, our groceries were brought not by airplane but by barge from Seattle, Washington. And they had to navigate all the way out there to the Aleutian Islands, about a two-week trip being pushed by an, an ocean-going barge and uh, uh, our tug. And then the groceries and everything that was on those would have to be offloaded and then transported by truck to the little remote sites where we lived. And, um, and we were the labor for that. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, it pays, it pays sometimes to be a senior person because us junior guys at that time, we had to go and unload all of those uh, barges. And, uh, but sometimes stuff just wasn't on the barge. You don't realize how much you enjoy sliced bread until there is none. You don't realize how much you enjoy everyday things. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Some more things that we ran out of. But, um, you know, so every day was get ready for weather. That's what every day was like. And, and in the summertime, uh, it was just beautifully green. We were surrounded by volcanoes and mountains and beautiful lakes and streams and rivers and the ocean itself. And uh, it was a really picturesque place to, to live, to hunt, and to fish. And if you enjoyed uh, salmon fishing or fishing for halibut or any of those things, the opportunities were endless. All you had to do was just hike somewhere and find you a spot and cast a lure. It, it was, I, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but 
for me to catch four or five nice-sized salmon in an afternoon was nothing. And that first summer there, I managed to land about 300 salmon. And, you know, I, I felt like, I really felt like I was living on a, in the frontier, you know, because it was kind of wild and the weather was brutal and, and uh, the fish were plentiful. And uh, so I, I enjoyed that. That did not make it any easier. In the winter of 1978-79, we were in one of the most severe weather periods that we had seen there, uh, so much so that it rained, it turned to snow, and then it froze really hard. And, of course, that turns the roads into nothing but ice slicks. The conventional-style school bus that we rode to work and back uh, had snow chains on it. That's something you don't see every day, and you certainly don't see it where I live now. But uh, we had to come down this large hill and then make a hard right turn to take out through the tundra about a mile to our remote work location. Well, me and about 30-some-odd other operators, technicians, uh, repair people, uh, communicators, we were all going to work on the first night of what would turn into an alpha. And we came down the hill, and as we were getting ready to make that right turn, the bus wrecked and tumped over into a ditch on the side of the road. Well, fortunately we weren't going that fast, and there were no severe injuries, a few bruises and things like that. But we had to climb out of the bus and walk back to the base up an icy hill and the wind was probably blowing at about 50 knots and, and that's that's really stiff wind when you're trying to walk on ice and going uphill doesn't make it any easier I suspect at that time at that point the the temperature was down in the teens and we were in a what they call a whiteout blizzard and um, and so me and my shipmates, my friends, my co-workers, we're all piling off the bus, checking on everybody, and, and we're beginning to hike back up to the base where we lived. And there's only one problem. The hill was so steep that you couldn't get any traction. And uh, there was no place to find traction, so we would walk a foot and the wind would blow us backward and we'd walk another foot and so we were just all doing this I don't know very lengthy probably a half hour trudge up this hill trying just not to get blown down and it was the first time ever that my beard froze uh, I, I remember walking inside the building and breaking the ice out of my beard well I'm young you know I'm in my early 20s and to me, this is all just a big adventure, and it would create stories to tell, and I'm telling you one of those stories now. That was hardship. You know, it was bad enough dealing with the Russians and, and the Chinese and stuff that we did with intelligence work, but uh, the weather was the beast that beat us every day, and, uh, you know, and we lost some guys up there strictly due to weather. You know, they didn't file hiking plans, and they went off to climb a hill or a mountain or or whatever they were doing and um, got lost in the tundra, and we'd have to send out search parties. And, you know, it was a, it was an eye-opener. And, and another thing that was commonly battled there, not just the weather, but, uh, you know, not everybody's prepared to go somewhere and stay for a year. And think about this. There's, there's no fast food restaurants. There's no department store. There's, there's no traditional grocery store. There's no convenience stores. Um, the gas station, uh, if you were lucky enough to have a vehicle, uh, you fed dollar bills into it like, um, like you'd feed into a change machine or a vending machine these days, and you'd have to have $1 bills to load into the machine, and then it would pump you exactly that many dollars worth of gas. And uh, so it was a different, different, different lifestyle, and it was hard. Now, because I was young, I didn't think it was hard. I just figured, well, this is the way we live, you know, and this is the way we serve our country. 
at least people aren't shooting at us every day. But uh, we had excitement that I can't tell you about because I suspect it's still classified. But we were doing the mission that, that we had trained so hard to do, and we took pride in doing that. Well, after that year and a half in, in ADAC, Alaska, I went back to Florida and went to a specialty school. And, uh, and uh, then I went to Guam, completely different environment. There were shopping centers and, and markets and, and uh, you know, beaches and hotels and nightclubs and, you know, any and every. It was just like, it's like small Hawaii. And I stayed there for 15 months. That was not hardship at all. I scuba dove and spearfished and and uh, collected shells and and uh, went to beach parties and you know and I just had a grand time. I did do one thing there that was not so good though. I drank way too much alcohol. After that, uh, I was back in Pensacola, Florida, for yet another school because that's the way the Navy works. You know they keep training you upward and uh, and and getting your specialty more and more honed as you become senior and by this time I was a, a second-class petty officer and when it came time to get orders I chose to go back to ADAC Alaska now does that sound crazy to you well maybe it should because I ended up spending a total of four years in my uh, 20 plus years of military service on ADAC Alaska but it was a good place to save money it was a good place for outdoor adventure and um, but you had to be prepared to do without the norm. There, there wasn't a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Pentecostal church, a Catholic church, a synagogue. You know, there was the chapel. And there were Catholic services and there were Protestant services. And if you were anything else of any other faith, if you were Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, or, or a particular type of uh, Protestant um, you know, there you just had to go to generic church or go to Catholic church, and those were the only two options. So that's kind of hard, especially if you're a, a Baptist fellow or a Methodist fellow or a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian. Uh, you know, you've, you've got to go to generic church, and, and most of us like to go within our denomination. So that's a, that's a little bit of a hardship. But on the second tour that I went, the first time I went, I was single. The second time I went, I was married and uh, starting my young little family. And, uh, you know, and so we lived in base housing. And we still had all the other hardships, except we had a nice little duplex house that we lived at. And we had everything that a typical two-bedroom house would have. We had a living room. We had a bathroom. We had two bedrooms, a kitchen, a laundry room. You know, just a nice little setup made for a small family. And while we were there, we added to our family. We had our baby daughter. So, anyway. Now, the things that you don't think about being hardships uh, and things you've got to prepare for is when you've got a baby, you've got to have to have diapers for that baby. And you've got to have that progressive size of diapers from newborn up through toddler. And uh, so you always had to think and buy ahead in anticipation that... The next barges that bring supplies to the base may not have the size diapers that you're going to need when your three-month-old is becoming a six-month-old or your six-month-old is becoming a one-year-old. And so you always had to have a stockpile. Does that sound familiar? So in a way, that kind of prepared me for the pandemic, the shortages and stuff. And then there's things that we take for granted like sliced bread, Sometimes at our one and only grocery store, there was no bread, no sliced bread, not wheat, not sliced, not rye, not pumpernickel, no, no bread at all. Another time, there were no cake mixes, and you really don't stop and think that's important until it's somebody's birthday, and you, or there might be cake mixes, mixes but nothing to make frosting with, and there was another time we ran out of sugar. And uh, that was probably a good thing. We just didn't know it at the time. And, and there was a, another time, and this just really struck me as odd. We didn't have mayonnaise on the island for a month. No mayonnaise. And you never realize just how important that jar of Kraft or Hel Hellman's is in the refrigerator until you're getting ready to make 
your favorite sandwich and you got no bread and you got no mayonnaise or or you're missing one of the ingredients and so you you know you just shake your fist in the air and say this ain't fair this ain't fair everybody's got to have mayonnaise and apparently we can live without that i ate a lot of mustard sandwiches so anyways so that kind of prepared me for the hardships of of being in a isolated quarantined uh small limited position where I can't always get the things I need. Um, a phone call home to the to my parents was three dollars a minute. Uh, so an hour long phone call is 180 bucks back then. We didn't have internet. We had TV that was on from noon until midnight, and it was all reruns. Uh, we didn't have live sports, so if we watched the Super Bowl. It was on a two-week delay, and we already knew who was going to win. We couldn't watch the World Series. And oftentimes, the programming, programming we did get was like educational TV. Not that anything's wrong with that, but uh, I must have watched 300 episodes of a show called Nature's Window. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, it was an isolated hardship. It was a hard time, but we were proud to do it because that was our duty. We knew where we were going. We knew what the duty was, and uh, and we knew there were going to be inconveniences. And another thing, uh, let's say we wanted to go on vacation. You know, just to get off of Adak Island to back to Anchorage was 800 bucks. Round trip was about 1400 bucks. What's there to do in Anchorage? Well, I don't know. Your folks are all back in the lower 48 to fly round trip from Adak Island to Mobile, Alabama, was about $2,500 back then. Who can afford to do that? I mean, really. Um, and, you know, there was no preferred rate. There was no military hop that we could get on and do that. So uh, going on vacation, going to see the folks at Thanksgiving or Christmas was just financially impossible. Not because we were young. Uh, we had enough money but, uh, you know, when you're married two, two and a half years and have a newborn, the thought of spending uh, the money for three sets of tickets to fly round trip back to your hometown is just out of the question because, you know, you're clicking, uh, you know, $6,000. And back in 1983, 84, that's a lot of money uh, for anybody. It's, it's a lot of money to me now. So, being prepared. Well, uh, I've done hard times before. Uh, twice in ADAC, and then again when I lived in Iceland for two years. Um, you just do without. You know, you make sacrifices for the good of yourself and everyone else around you. When the mayonnaise does come in, you don't buy six jars. You know, when the bread does come in, you try to buy a couple of two or three loaves, but you don't fill up the grocery shopping cart. You don't buy all the cake mixes. You don't buy all the pork chops. You, you hear me? And um, because really for some of those things, you never knew when you were going to get an opportunity to even see them in the grocery store again. So all of those experiences... And weather, oh my gosh, the weather in Iceland, very similar to that in Adak. Lots of wind, lots of wind, lots of snow, lots of rain, always cold. I can remember on the 4th of July having a picnic, and we were all wearing parkas at the 4th of July. It was like 40 degrees, and the wind was blowing like 25 miles an hour. And uh, we were trying to play softball because, <laughs> you know, it was, it was the 4th of July, and... and you know, so we were just going to tough it out and try to play a game. So, yeah, there were trade-offs. Yeah, the sightseeing in Iceland was grand, but the hardships, you know, and one of the hardships I remember very well was the second winter we were there, we had nonstop snow. And every night the snow plow would plow the road in front of my house and make a big bunk of snow right at the end of my driveway. So every night at about 
oh, 10, 30 or 11 o'clock. I was sitting there suited up waiting for the snow plow to go by so I could get out there and shovel that stuff while it was still soft enough to move because if it sat overnight, it would freeze hard <laughs> and you couldn't get out. And uh, the walk to work was 13 miles. <laughs> so you can't do that. And it's not like there's a, a, a public bus that's going to come by. So I've done some time with hardships and inconveniences. And now at this juncture in my life, when I'm 30 years older, 35 years older, um, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm in a way prepared for hardship. I'm prepared for hardship. I'm prepared to be isolated in my mind, in my spirit. I'm prepared to not be able to do the things I really want to do because there's risk involved. Now, surely in uh, Alaska and Iceland, you know, some days you looked outside and said, well, I need to triple up today. You know, I, I need to wear my heaviest jacket, my, my snow gloves, my ski goggles, uh, my knit cap and put my parka hood up and cinch it down uh, because uh, the weather was risky. And I kind of liken going into the grocery store these days with an unseen risk. You know, when I was in Alaska and Iceland, I could look out the window and see what the weather was doing. I could step out on the porch and feel the wind. I, um, I could dash back in and, and grab a heavier jacket or the better gloves. Uh, but these days, dashing into the grocery store involves a risk, but I can't see the element. I can't see the virus. I can't just look at somebody and say, oh, that guy's got the virus. I can tell a mile off, and he's coughing and sniffling, and he looks sickly, and, you know, you can't, it doesn't really work. Yet, I remain one of the few people I see on most trips to the grocery store who wears a mask every time he goes in there. And, uh... So just like back in my early military days, I'm prepared. I do what I can. I, uh, I get into the dangerous place quickly and get out quickly. And I trust that you do the same. You know, yeah, there's depression. There's sadness. There's fear. There's the full gamut of emotions going on right now as we approach uh, Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. People are trying to decide how in the world are they going to have a Thanksgiving gathering, how are they going to do it safely. And, um, you know, to me, it's, it's as great a worry as when the weather went to alpha condition when I was a young man back in Adak, Alaska, where, no, I wasn't going to go for a hike during that weather. I wasn't going to disobey the rules for safety. And now the rules are just different, but the risk is life-threatening just the same. And the threat is, of course, coronavirus. So if you think about how hard this is for you, and it's hard for us too, it's especially hard for Kathleen. Uh, she loves to shop, and, and, I, and, I, and I fully support her need to shop. Uh, Amazon isn't the end-all, be-all when it comes to shopping. Um, you know, stuff coming in the mail every day is not her idea of browsing, and, and I so get that. But right now, I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to protect her, protect myself, and to protect others from this virus because we're going to get past this thing, and when we do, we're going to get back to life as we really know and love it. Just like when I transferred from Adak, Alaska to Guam, and I was in a small paradise, when I transferred from Adak, Alaska to Pensacola, Florida, and the beaches and the, and the bays and the bayous and the hunting and the fishing and all the things, that, and the, you know, the ability to have a garden, things that I really love to do. I, I got back to those things, and sure enough, we will get back to where we once were if we all do our parts uh, to protect ourselves and to protect others. And I'm going to tell you, I'm at that age, you know. I don't have the comorbidities of heart disease or diabetes or a compromised immune system these days, but I'm right on the cusp of that age group that's at a higher risk. 
And, you know, I don't have to be hitting the head with a brick to get smart about this. I want my pearl of wisdom to be that I'm going to mask up because that's the smart thing to do. I'm going to sanitize my hands every time I go somewhere. Uh, our bug man came the other day to spray our house for insects. It's a once-a-month deal. Uh, he came in, and I quarantined Kathleen to a room, even though he was wearing a mask. And then after he went to the various rooms in the house and, and, and touched the handles to the uh, cabinets under the sinks and stuff, I went through and sanitized all that stuff, sprayed it with alcohol. The doorknobs to the house sprayed those too. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and I didn't hang out with him while he was doing his job. Uh, you know, I let him get in, get out, said, good to see you, see you next time, and, and, uh, that was the end of the deal. And we paid electronically, so I don't have to handle paper or pens or any of those things because I'm prepared. And much of this is not going to change over the next four months or so. But I'm going to tell you, as soon as I'm eligible for a vaccine, I'm going to get a vaccine. And, um, you know, uh, I, want to, I want to be part of a solution once again. One time I was part of a solution about making sure that the Soviet Union didn't expand its axis of power. And we were a success at that, and we made some sacrifices to accomplish that. Now I'm on a mission to protect me and mine and to make sure that we get back to that happy place where we once were. Until next time, this is Gene Fleming. I'm using a new microphone tonight, and I hope this works. Oh, my gosh, I've talked a long time. But um, that's the podcast for tonight. I hope you're prepared. I hope you're prepared, and I hope that you're not getting bored with the routines and that you remind yourself daily that this is a matter of life and death because nobody knows for sure just how the coronavirus is going to affect them. And, folks, I don't want to lose a one of you. Until next time, this is Gene Fleming on the Pushing 60 Aside podcast. Sorry I ran long, but sometimes stories take a while to tell. Uh, if you like the podcast, keep listening. If you really like it, share it. Thank you so much, and may the good Lord bless you.